Hey Holons, welcome back to the Brilliant Podcast. On this week's episode, I sit down with a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ben Chan. Ben and I chat about trisector innovation. Innovation programs that work with business, government and academia. Ben tells us about his work across Jakarta, Singapore and Perth. And we take a deep dive chat into driving systems change at scale. Cool, thanks for joining me, Ben. Um, so I'm here with... Pleasure. Yeah, thanks. I'm here with Dr. Ben Chan, um, who's visiting us in sunny Perth from Jakarta, Indonesia. Um, so Ben's the head of... Not the head, sorry, we just spoke about this. Um, Ben's a senior practitioner with the Presencing Institute in Asia. Um, and he's got a, some great stories I think he'll share with us today about his career and some of the work he does um, with us. So yeah, let, let's, let's get started. Um, do you want to tell us yeah, a bit about yourself, Ben, and um, how you find yourself in Perth every now and again? Okay. Well, thanks for inviting me to have this chat, Dylan. Uh, so uh, I'm a Singaporean living in uh, Australia two weeks in a month and uh, working and having fun in Indonesia. So I kind of uh, hoover around every month between Perth, Jakarta and Singapore. The reason I'm in Perth for two weeks is to become a nanny, uh, (laughs) a nanny to my two grandsons here. And uh, so so I'm here to support my daughter in taking care of her children here. And uh, in that process of being a nanny when the boys are in school so I you know have nothing much to do and so I get very restless mm. and uh, so I look around and I ask uh, my friends who are here from UWA uh, from the uh, Center for Social Impact Katie so what's you know what can I do to support the work to make uh, Perth a better place because uh, as I look at my two grandchildren you know the future that's their future so uh, how might I be able to contribute for their better future uh, while I'm still in an area of influence uh, mm. of uh, you know, creating a better future for them because otherwise 20, 30 years from now uh, they will say you know, Grandpa you had a lot of area of influence uh, 20 years ago why you did not do anything and the place is not as good mm. uh, so that's my passion that drives me up you know, and down up and down and, and uh, really co-creating the future for them. And also I've got two grandchildren in Singapore. So for me, uh, it makes, makes sense that I need to, to really uh, make sure that things are good in this region between Singapore, Indonesia, and Australia. Mm. And Indonesia, as you know, is a very big archipelago, 17,526 islands. Yeah, and that's at, uh, at low tide yeah. high mm. tide I don't know how many is left. <laughs> but there are, there are a lot of islands and Indonesia is such an important uh, piece of the ecology in this part of the world mm. that uh, you know if Indonesia becomes poor uh, it affects Western Australia as much as it affects Singapore because mm. uh, you know if you don't put food into people's hands people will just put bombs mm. right? and then you know it just it, it's, it will happen 
if we don't do something. So that's my passion to do something on a personal level. At the same time, on a you know, kind of a societal and professional level, while I still have this area of influence to to do something that would be able to have a better future mm. for the next generation. So that's my passion. Yeah, cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so we met uh, two or three weeks ago now in, in Jakarta at a Starbucks. Um, and I asked you then um, a question about, so um, and we, had, we had a lovely meal, gado gado afterwards, which is a beautiful vegetarian dish. Um, I asked you where you worked and you, you, you had a funny little anecdote. Did, did you want to share that? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I'm sure uh, some of the listeners or many of the listeners have heard of Singapore and, and many of you may have been to Singapore. And, uh, and so I asked the same question to Dylan. Do you like Singapore? All right. He said, yeah, it's a great city. All right. It's clean. What's your, what's your impression about Singapore? Tell us. Yeah. So I, I was in Singapore in 2016 um, with a, a crew from Bloom for a, like what this, we went to National University of Singapore for GES, which was Global Youth Entrepreneurship Summit. Um, and, I've some got some family in Singapore and Singapore's great like as a with a background in engineering like there's some mega projects and it's a great tourist city it can be really expensive all the way down to you know I met some locals there like through caps and I think went to some great hawkers and had some great feeds for like you know five bucks or something so it's got it's it's just just this melting pot and it's a hub for Asia like um, and there's there's so much water and things to do and um, yeah, but I was really inspired when I was there in 2016 in the innovation scene. And like, I think um, I'd love to go back again soon. You like Singapore then? Yeah, I like Singapore. Do you want to live in Singapore? I probably wouldn't live there. You wouldn't live there? Um, I'd work there. I'd travel through there. Like, um, But yeah, I mean... Maybe just visiting. <laughs> yeah, I think just visiting, yeah. So that's that's the kind of, uh, you know, I would say the general co- uh, feedback that I get when I ask people, uh, you like Singapore? Many of them like Singapore mm. because everything works there, right? You know, they turn on the switch, you know, there's going to be light. Yeah. Unlike some places, you turn on the switch, maybe there's light, maybe there's no light. So uh, many people like Singapore and mm. very, I would say when I ask the next question, do you like to live there? You know, many of them say, oh, well, may- maybe not yeah. <laughs> because it's a very restrictive uh, uh, country. Yeah? Yeah? Singapore is known as a fine city. Yeah? Mm. Uh, fine as in, having to pay a fine because when you throw things around, they find you. you. You don't do things, they find you. So it's known as a fine city. But uh, my my analogy is, that, you know, many people like to visit Singapore because Singapore is a zoo, uh, yeah. uh, you know, where it's safe, it's clean, uh, everything works, everything is man-made, and all the animals are in the cages and the people who live there, uh, they have lots of animals in the zoo, they have sufficient to eat. Right, no more, no less, mm. and uh, so you know it's a nice place, but very few of us would really like to live in a zoo because there are a lot of restrictions put by the zookeeper. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and when you get across from from Singapore, uh, a forty-five minutes ferry boat ride from Singapore, you end up in Batam, which is the nearest Indonesian island, mm. and the moment you cross that forty-five minutes time travel. Uh, you know, one is in a jungle because mm. Indonesia is a big jungle. It's, mm. a, it's a feast of us, very vast space. And in a jungle, you do not know what's going on. You know, you turn on the corner, it may be danger, it may be an opportunity. 
but most of us, I think, like to live in the jungle because it's fun, it's exciting, right? And uh, you know, like the jungle, there are no real rules and regulations. It's yeah. uh, you know, and the, the the thing in the jungle is that as long you know, don't get caught. Yeah, <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> Whereas in Singapore, they have cameras all over the place. So I always say that you know, well, I come from the zoo, which is Singapore, and uh, I work in. And having fun in the jungle for the last uh, <laughs> uh, 15 years. And so now that I have to come to uh, Western Australia because of uh, taking care of my grandchildren, uh, babysitting them, uh, and I start to notice something about Australia, very mm. peculiar. Right? So Australia has very big uh, sparse land. So I think Western Australia is the largest land mass. But the population is very, very, very low. Mm. So I tell my Western Australia's friend, you know, Singapore is a jungle. Uh, Singapore is a zoo. Indonesia is a jungle. Australia is a national park. <laughs> <laughs> I think. So, so when the animals are allowed to roam around freely, but there are still uh, what we call obi markers to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Here, here we are, just two two animals having a chat. Um, that, that's a really cool analogy. Thanks, Ben. Um, and actually, on that note, I just wanted to add. Um, I loved one of the. The examples you shared with me when we were having lunch at that restaurant in um, Indonesia a couple of weeks ago, and you were negotiating, you know, your sort of you knew the manager of the restaurant, um, and you negotiated a bit of a discount on our lunch, and, and you kindly shouted me, and then and then got your discount and turned to me, and you went, "See, it's a jungle," <laughs> <laughs> yes, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, the, the other the other joke I liked is um, in terms of like, and us even here meeting, we're meeting at, at my home here in Victoria Park, and we just had lunch. Um, together on the strip um, but you talked about like your office and you use this um, MPR do you want to talk a bit about that oh, I yes. think that's another funny joke but... yeah you know uh, Indonesia in Jakarta especially traffic is horrendous mm. and you not know, getting from the north side of the city to the east side it takes a long time uh, so uh, so many people ask me Ben where's your office I said my office is MPR oh. I said where is that where's that building I said, it's NPR. Where is it? It stands for malls, plaza, and restaurant. So I can be anywhere you want to meet me. At any mall, any plaza, any restaurant. So my office is known as NPR. So now they get it, it's NPR. So anytime they want to meet me, they just give me a call. Which part of the NPR are you at? That's brilliant. I think we might have to come up with an Australian version of that because I love, um, I just, with my Medium account, I just created my handle as the digital nomad. Um, but that's I love working from coffee shops and right. co-working spaces. And it's so much fun. Isn't it? It's great fun, yeah. And you, you increase your level of awareness of people mm. as you look around. Mm. And I think as well, it's a, a really cool stimulant for like conversations, exactly. like immersing ourselves in different environments. Right. Yeah. Um, another when we met in Indonesia, another thing we, we sp- spoke about, and I think we both share a passion, is for um, uh, education. And you know, I've noticed definitely. Um, here in Perth, you know, a lot of talk about teaching STEM in schools, so science, technology, engineering, maths, and then we're trying to move more towards the inclusion of the arts, so then to include it to be STEAM. But you would take it another step further than that. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, uh, you know, many industrialised or newly industrialised country into industrialization have always focused on science, <coughs> technology, engineering, and maths. Mm. Uh, and that's rightfully because you know you need engineers, technicians 
to start an industry. Mm. However, you know, as uh, we see that uh, the country becomes more uh, industrialized, the people become more affluent, mm. and uh, and as a good example, looking at South Korea, for example, uh, South Korea started with STEM, right? Mm. You know, focusing on science, technology, engineering, maths in their school in the early days of the industrialization of South Korea after mm. the Korean War. And uh, they were very successful. And they, they in fact, were considered uh, the four dragons back in the 90s as, uh, you know, the most promising uh, Asian tigers, they call them, not dragons, Asian tigers. And, uh, of course, the oil crisis hit and, uh, in the 1990s. And then what happened? There was a big uh, economic crisis in this whole region. And so countries like... Uh, uh, South Korea was badly affected. So was Singapore at that time. And uh, Taiwan also was also affected. Mm. And uh, what we see through that experience of that crisis, uh, South Korea actually took a very innovative way to include the arts into STEM. So it became STEAM. Mm. And because we are all familiar with uh, Korean serial uh, TV serials, right? We are also familiar with Gangnam. Gangnam Style. Yeah. Gangnam Style. <laughs> and, you know, so those things could only have been uh, propagated or the speed of uh, diffusion was very fast through the rest of the world. If you look at the Korean movies and even the mm. Gangnam, uh, it was because of technology. Mm. Without technology, it wouldn't have gone that far to spread out to the world. Mm. And so for me, I said, that's a very good lesson we can learn from the South Korean. Mm. to really build in arts because the arts on its own usually get very contained in a very small container. Whereas when you start to bring technology, it's starting just upscale and people get a chance to enjoy uh, the arts. So for me, I'm a firm believer of having uh, STEM plus the A becomes STEAM. However, uh, I took it a little bit more deeper because right through the whole uh, STEAM acronym, what is important is the spirit of entrepreneurism. And uh, you, you know, whether you're a scientist or a technologist, an engineer or a, even an academic, the, the spirit of entrepreneurism is important because it is different from entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a process as most English language uh, words that end with ship, like partnership, friendship. Yeah? Uh, those are all words that end with ship. It's a process. So entrepreneurship is actually a process. Mm. But people use it thinking that that's the end. But it's not. What's important is the philosophy of why do we have this process. Mm. So for me, I am a firm believer that every entrepreneur needs to first build in the correct spirit of entrepreneurism. In other words, why am I creating? Why am I doing this business? So entrepreneurship, entrepreneurism is concerned with the creation of wealth, not money only, wealth mm. that adds value to society. Mm. Yeah? And in, a, in an innovative and creative way. So if you look at any entrepreneurship book that you pick up, they always talk about these four things. Rich. Yeah? And I teach entrepreneurship in the university. So every time, uh, the first day when the students come, I always ask, why are you coming to my class? <laughs> this is another good story. I want to get rich. <laughs> okay, you want to get rich. Why do you want to get rich? All entrepreneurs are rich. Oh, yeah? Let me tell you, what does the acronym RICH stands for? Huh? 
Every entrepreneur's book you take, any book on entrepreneur, they talk about risk taking. Entrepreneurs have to take risks. Okay. Second thing they always tell you that entrepreneurs have to be innovative. So the I factor. Mm. The third factor that is always about the can-do attitude or the character. Because entrepreneurs don't succeed the first time. They fail a few times. And they have to get up again. And that's what we call the can-do attitude. Okay? And if you look at an entrepreneur, is a drug dealer also an entrepreneur? <laughs> yeah. I think the drug dealer, don't you think so? Does a drug dealer take risks? Mm. Right. No, a lot of risks, right? Mm. Is the drug dealer innovative? Yeah. In what way? Oh, he needs to, you know, build networks, you know, um, stay underground, stay out of the eye of the police, like um, smuggle his product, all right. sorts of stuff, yeah. So when you put them in the jail, they're innovative enough to create a new market, isn't it? Yeah. And you, <laughs> and you, they, they serve their term in the prison, they created a market, you put them out into society again, so they have the can-do attitude, isn't it? Mm. They will go out and create a larger market mm-hmm. and they come back again. So they have this can-do attitude. Mm. The question that I have is that does the wealth or the uh, wealth of the drug dealer, is it sustainable? No. Right? So the drug dealer has only got the RIC, mm. but it doesn't have the H factor. So what is the H factor? It's the heart mm. of doing the business. Because if you read success stories of entrepreneurs who are successful, they have always, whether explicitly or implicitly, have talked about the element of having the heart for the creation of wealth that adds value to society. Mm. So for people who want to be rich, we need to have that H factor, which is the heart, to be able to sustain that wealth, not only for ourselves, but for the people that we are serving with our products or services. So that's where uh, the difference between a drug dealer and an entrepreneur with a heart. So that's the rich factor for me. That's, that's great. Thanks, Ben. Um, I, I love just your personal character, how you have the ability to be able to like, you know, um, share an anecdote or a story like that that sort of, you know, hits that deep and meaningful level but still has that sense of humor tied in as well. Um, that's a real beautiful one. I think our, our listeners will really enjoy that. Um, yeah, so I suppose without like maybe diving too much into theory you as a tool in this podcast, I think um, that'll come through some of the other people we'll chat to in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us maybe just a, a little bit uh, if you want to, say, give a bit of a surface overview of um, your work with the Presencing Institute and some of the stuff that's happening in Perth. Um, maybe talk a bit about the U School in Bali mm-hmm. or um, some of the leadership programs in, in Jakarta. Okay, so... Uh... I first got introduced to Theory U way back in 2005. Mm. And uh, at that time, I was uh, teaching at the university uh, on entrepreneurship and business creation. I was teaching there. And uh, so uh, I was invited to uh, help a foundation in Indonesia just after the Bali bombing then to what we call building our common future, right? Building trust for our common future because Indonesia was so fragmented at that time with uh, 
President Suharto's downfall, mm. and you know uh, things were so uncertain, and many people questioned whether Indonesia would actually remain as a republic, or would it break up into many different countries like the Soviet Union? And uh, one of the things that MIT was very concerned uh, was that Indonesia is a very important uh, uh, ingredient in the stability equation for the world, not only for Southeast Asia. And so, just imagine right now they have, you know, at that time the Republic of Indonesia. Now, what if that Republic had split up into four different countries? Then they would have four times more headache or problems with terrorism in the world. Mm. And so, uh, uh, there was a big meeting in Bali and, and they, they called leaders from all over the world to say, Hey, you know, uh, how might we be able to make Indonesia safe for the world? Because Indonesia uh, is such a big archipelago. And so, at the end of the four days conference in Bali, one of the things they said that Indonesia really needs is education. Because if we don't educate the people, uh, people will give them the wrong kind of uh, education. Mm. And so, uh, I was invited to uh, help to set up the education academy. And I said, so what sort of a school would you want me to set up? They said, we don't know, actually. <coughs> so I said, is it a primary school? Is it a university? <coughs> no, they say it's uh, trying to get the leaders from the business, the government, and civil society together. Right? And let them go on a learning journey and start to be able to see the system, education, healthcare, from different perspectives, so that they can collectively build up Indonesia, the resilience of Indonesia against terrorism, against uh, what we call uh, polarization of religions. So that's where I got introduced to uh, Professor Otto Sharma, and he was talking about uh, open mind, open heart, open will, and I had no clue what he was talking about because... <laughs> <coughs> Business school professors never talk about open heart, open will. <laughs> we only talk about open mind. So when you talk about open will, about you know uh, operating from your place of most potential, it all did not resonate to me. I just didn't know what he was talking. So to me, at that time, it was like uh, being introduced to become a vegetarian. <laughs> when I know it's good, right? But... It tastes terrible, right? As a meat eater, you give me a vegetable, I puke. <laughs> so that was how I felt at that time. That, you know, what is this? You know, what is this mushy thing of open mind, open heart, open will? I don't understand. And so, uh, uh, I kind of the curiosity was something that kept me going. I said, something curious about this this guy talking about this open mind, open heart, open will. And so when I started to look back on my life's journey. You know, uh, when I was an entrepreneur and all, and uh, how my business had failed and how I came up again and started all over uh, into the academia to help other people. Then it started to resonate to me and say, oh, yeah, that's what this guy was talking about. That, you know, uh, the work that, that I'm doing, what does it mean to me? What is it about my bigger self that is more important than my other self that is very much egoistic? So we all have these two selves of you know, our egoistic self and our authentic self. Most of the time we forget our authentic self because the ego just kills up the whole or envelopes the authentic 
itself it becomes so small mm. and so uh, that caught me uh, you know talking to Otto and started to work with him and then I started to also work uh, look at Peter Sangi's work on systems thinking and then then the whole thing started to make sense after 2007 so it took me about two years to really figure out what these people are talking about. And I said, yeah, that didn't make sense. So therefore, that helped me to, to dwell more and uh, started to become, uh, uh, learning to become a practitioner. And I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm still practicing because, you know, uh, it's something that uh, it's, Theory U is such a, the basics of Theory U is about humanism. It's about us shifting from human doing to becoming human being. That's what, to me, Theory U is about. Mm. It's so fundamental. It's nothing else. You know, it's no uh, uh, rocket science. It's just being back to humanity of uh, who are we, right? And how do we uh, build a relationship with the people around us? Because mm. the problems of this world is because of relationship. That's all. If we can get the relationship right, then we won't have all the problems that we are seeing right now. Mm. Right? So that really got me interested in, in Theory U work. And I've been doing it since... Uh, 2007, uh, you know, uh, working with tri-sector leaders from the business, government, and civil society in Indonesia uh, to bring them on a learning journey for nine months so that they start to be able to understand from different perspectives and improve their quality of listening and conversation becomes much more deeper and more enriching. And they collectively themselves self-organize to create a better future. So that to me is very exciting. And so we've been doing that since 2008 uh, until, so we have about 10 years experience uh, with uh, 30 people from each cohort. Mm. So we have about 180 uh, alumni members so far on the IDEAS program. It's known as the MIT IDEAS program. Mm. That stands for Innovative, Dynamic, Education, Action for Sustainability. Mm. And that program uh, is running. And in 2000 and. I got connected with uh, Katie from CSI and she, we talked about it and, it's, and she said it's something that's what Perth really needs to a Western Australian needs. So why don't we try to bring in a tri-sector program uh, into Western Australia? And I said, yeah, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm still a nanny here and in the, <laughs> when the boys are in school, I get bored, right? So I said, okay, I'll just have fun with you guys. So we started the Elias program last year. Uh, with again same same kind of format with uh, business leaders, government leaders, and civil society leaders going on a learning journey. And what does Elias? And Elias stand stands for experienced leaders, innovation across sectors. Yeah. Okay, and so it's known as Elias WA. Mm. So we start with Western Australia as a prototype, and uh, I would say it's been very successful based on the prototypes. I think you probably have seen some. Yeah, of I went to the event. The, the event recently, and yeah. uh, they will be graduating on the twenty first of February. The first uh, cohort, mm-hmm. uh, Elias uh, WA one point zero, and so we are very excited that you know mm-hmm. uh, the, the prototypes are going to take much uh, to be able to upscale from fisheries to healthcare to education to energy, and, and so this uh, to us is really the. Uh, the seeds that we have already uh, starting to get the seeds and plant it, mm. looking for places to plant. Right? And so, uh, and so therefore, it's important, you know, when we look at seeds and ideas, if we have seeds that we leave it on the table, they will remain as seeds. Yeah. Right? And so, seeds 
to for the seeds the seeds has so much potential so for the seeds to be able to germinate what do you have to do you got to plant them you got to plant them right so you need to have soil that's the second s huh? mm. and the soil when you plant the seed in the soil we all know we see nothing for a period of time nothing happens mm. on the surface yeah? mm. yet we know something is happening Something's below growing, yeah. the surface of the earth huh? mm. and at some point in time that seed will grow so in the meantime while we are waiting the third s is important stewardship to provide that stewardship for the earth and you know nurture it, make sure we take care as a gardener taking care and the fourth s which is the season because everything will come in its own season we cannot control the season we can control the seed we can control the soil we can control the stewardship but we cannot tell the seed when to grow so therefore the four s's to me is very important the mm. season and the season will come in its own time it's actually you know the season comes it depends on the almighty when is going to come out the thing mm. right so so i always tell people that you know oh you know they say oh it takes a long time yeah so i ask them do you want to grow oak trees or do you want to grow bean sprouts if you want to grow bean sprouts you take the the green piece the seed you just throw it on anything like a wet canvas what happens the next morning you start seeing the shoots right mm. it's very fast but however you just pull it out it's gone but if you want to plant an oak tree does it come out immediately <laughs> it doesn't come out oh, no. right and and the, the big question how much can we take or what we call the time delay because the time delay is what causes emotional tension in us in anything we do whether it's change or whether it's anything that we do there is always a time delay and if we are not respecting the time delay then we find that you know every now and then we take, open up the soil and see the seed is it growing is it growing <laughs> 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 right? yeah. and so that's what i call the four s's that i live with and and i tell people you know if you want to plant something that's sustainable that's able to impact the society and and also for ourselves our family uh we need to practice the four s and mm. four s's and to be able to uh, really focus on the stewardship so so for me that's the important part of oh, the four s's the stewardship is the most important mm. yeah that's a really another really powerful metaphor um let's talk more then about on that off the back of that on some seeds and what's happening in perth we had a lovely chat the other day with a group of people about smart cities and we sort of framed the discussion around the idea of is a smart city enough because you hear, hear that a lot in terms of um and i mean even to me my journey like uh, i did the u lab last year and, and was introduced to theory u and i like to describe it from a background as an engineer working in a corporate environment where there's so much focus on digital technology and the future of work and disruption and to me i like theory u is a i like to describe it to to my friends and people that i work with as a social technology and this idea of the most important technology of our time is a social one not a digital one and that's where theory you um is a really like it's sort of like a golden tool which we use um yeah but on that thought of yeah sorry back to the smart cities um this idea of smart cities considers so much about digital technologies and the future of cities and internet of things cloud computing blockchain mm -hmm. but it forgets the human aspect But let's have a bit of a chat around around that. What do you think? Like, what's what's a level up from a smart city? Well, I know in that conversation we had was very exploratory at, at UWA, mm. and uh, one of our 
participants or colleagues in that conversation brought up about you know moving up from smart city to a brilliant city mm. I thought it was really brilliant to national <laughs> progression so but then the question got, so what is a brilliant city yeah <laughs> so someone else said well it's like a diamond you know it's brilliant and it's also like a diamond is a multifaceted and which is true because the more facets as the diamond the cut has got the much more brilliance the brilliance comes out right? but all this facet means there are different parts of the diamond and same thing so if you look at we're trying to do a brilliant city we need to have diversity people coming from all over the world coming here and uh, the big problem with diversity is tolerance and so some leaders have uh, you know said we want diversity but we also want uniformity so they try to make uh, people uniform uh, however i like the, the the tagline of indonesia's leaders that uh, president sukarno way back in 1929 when he, uh, about 80 of them came together in holland to, to get freedom from uh, the dutch uh, colonial masters and they straight away recognized that the uh, the asset of Indonesia is actually its diversity because Indonesia has so many different ethnic races, And so they came up with this tagline that they call it unity in diversity. Mm. Right? Which means that we unite because of diversity. And with diversity, it comes a lot of innovation. And so, therefore, you know, a brilliant city is going to attract people from the question, how might we have this level of tolerance and living in harmony. So to start with that, you must get people themselves to start to look and understand what is each individual's feeling about his or her work mm. and what does each individual see him or herself as what uh, Otto Sharma said is the big S of the self and the big W of the work. What does mm. it make meaning the work that we go and do every day? And so, uh, to have a brilliant city, we need to build that kind of capacity first into the people uh, to start to understand that, you know, uh, it's the same mountain we are climbing, but we are climbing on different sides of the mountain. And when we climb on different sides of the mountain, we certainly have different perspectives. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, you come from an A perspective, B perspective, and I come from a C perspective. We are climbing three different mountains. We are not. We are climbing the same mountain. Mm -hmm. So like a diamond, you have multifaceted. And because of the multifaceted, it will have brilliance. And we know that the diamond, the quality of the diamond is resilience. It's the hardest known uh, material, right? Mm. You can cut. So for the, uh, if we're using all those uh, natural analogy and start to look at a brilliant city, I would say those are some of the ingredients. Diversity, right? To be able to have uh, innovation, to be able to really trust in the system. If you want to have this sort of thing, the level of trust must be high. Because if the level of trust is not high, then you can have conflict. And so mm -hmm. trust is so important. And trust can only happen when people listen to each other, uh, you know, in a much deeper level than the, the level of listening that some of our leaders are, you know, doing. It's, it's just, you know, the, the leaders on the business, government and civil society. They are the three pillars of, of society. Yet the leaders... They don't trust each other. And if you look at it deeper, why is it that they don't trust each other? It's because the level and quality of their listening and conversation is very low. Mm. It's just downloading. It's not something that is much deeper than even emphatic listening or emphatic conversation. It's really to be able to surrender 
one's own will, one's own belief to be able to say, hey, you know, this is what I know before. Now what's emerging, I need to come together with other leaders from the, say I'm from the business, some from the government, to have a conversation and have a create a space that we collectively emerge something that, you know, not one person is responsible. And it's just like playing jazz. I mean, you know jazz, right? Mm. Nobody writes the whole chess. It's it's emerging. If, for example, you are a keyboardist and I'm the drummer and somebody else is the bass, and you just come and tinker, tinker around with your keyboard, and I like the tone, and I start to give the beat, and then the bass comes in, and then, you know, voila. After some time, we all just keep, you know, emerging that music, and then that comes out jazz. So that's playing jazz. Mm. It's not like, a, like the orchestra where, you know, Somebody who's writing the whole partito from the beginning to the end is prescriptive. So in this world of disruptive change, we cannot have this uh, this thing of trying to be prescriptive. Mm. We need to have emergent. And that can only happen when the level of trust is high. Mm. And so therefore, you know, this brilliant city needs to have not only the hardware, as you mentioned, about Internet of Things and all the technology. Those are the hardware, H-A-R-D, W-A-R-D, hardware. What I believe we need to put in the brilliant city to make it resilient even stronger is the hardware, H-E-A-R-T-W-A-R-E. And once the leader has the hardware and the hardware, then that's a powerful combination to really make Perth a brilliant city that becomes a microcosm of the world Mm. that people can start to look at Perth and say, hey, what's happening in this, you know, city down under the city that's always been yeah. considered as the backwater. I mean, people always talk about Eastern State, Western Australia. Wait a while, Western Australia. Wesley a while, you know, nothing happens there. Everything is slow. Like you said, wait a while, everything wait a while. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to, to really make this uh, uh, brilliant city starting from Perth because, you know, it's a, it's a great city. You got the land, you don't have the people, but you can start to attract the people in and create this brilliant city so that the other cities in Asia start to look at it and say, hey, we also want to become a brilliant city. Mm. Then they come to say, how might we? And so they will come to Perth and then Perth will, you know, it's just an automatic, it will be a self, uh, what you call a reinforcing loop. More people will come and more energy and then it just keep growing. And then, you know, so to me, that's what I see as what Perth is able to offer. Or as what one of our colleagues said, in service of what? The brilliant city in service of what? To me, it's in service of to be able to create diversity, innovation, to be able to get the other cities, like uh, countries like Indonesia, Singapore, (coughs) Vietnam, to start to learn from Perth. Mm. And so for me, that that concept of brilliant city really excites me. And I like to be part of that that part of the movement to make it put into brilliance. Yeah, me too. And I think um, that might become a, a, a neat little theme of this podcast is asking people what, what their take on a brilliant city exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. How might they would like to contribute and make it happen yeah. with all the diversity that you know we get in people who are listening from around the world. Come to Perth and you'll see that it's a great place to start to build a brilliant city. Mm. Yeah, really cool. Um so I'm, I might ask you one more question. Um, just on that on that note of trust, when I, when I was in Indonesia recently and through studying theory, you, Otto gave a great example 
of the inversion of politics with the um, PSI party, so the Solidarity Party Indonesia. Um, and I'd love to try and catch up with some of their leaders next time I'm back in Indonesia. But do you want to maybe just tell us a bit about that as a movement? Because that really inspired me when I was in Indonesia. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Grace, who is the head of uh, the PSI, uh, she believed that, you know, that it's about transformation. So I told her that she's not a change agent, but she's the ambassador of transformation. Because change, change makers, this word, you know, change is is so commonly used. But people who are ambassadors of transformation have a much more deepest belief in what they're doing and carry out that message. And so uh, she, got a, uh, she got a group of people who are professionals who are kind of uh, a little bit anti-establishment to challenge the status quo. And that's good because you need uh, people to challenge the status quo to have innovation. And so uh, she started a party and she had a lot of young people following her. And one of the uh, very promising young leader uh, also joined the ideas program. So Grace and her colleague uh, joined the ideas program, and uh, from that ideas program, it even you know excited them more in terms of putting the hardware. And so they're getting more people now to come to to say what does this PSI stands for? It's not just a group of uh, young people who want change for the sake of change, but really. They are looking in terms of a more systemic transformation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I understand that Grace and, uh, and a colleague, Asmara, okay, are both putting, uh, using Theory U as one of the foundation to gel the people together. And that's, we talk about the quality of listening, quality of conversation, and really asking them the two simple questions, who is myself and what is my work? And when that starts to resonate, and the people start to collectively see that they are actually polishing up the diamond. And yet, having the multifaceted of diversity of people from different uh, walks of life coming together to create this diamond that is going to be brilliant. So the uh, concept and analogy of a brilliant city is really going to really start to take place. Mm. Uh, because smart city means, you know, what is it? What's a smart city? It's just technology. Yeah. Right? But with the brilliant city and the analogy of the diamond, uh, it really makes sense to me that uh, mm. we need to you know, propagate this and start to bring. So in Indonesia, I will certainly uh, bring this thing up to Grace and her colleagues and say, yeah, let's try to build a brilliant city. Right? And uh, so we have brilliant cities in Perth, in Jakarta, in Bali. Mm. Uh, and also we'll be having a, uh, hopefully a youth school. Okay, in U School Asia Pacific in Bali. Uh, the, the, the intention is to have it by 2020. And so we're working hard towards that deadline of 20 to have the uh, U School open, where we will be able to have uh, a lot of uh, opportunity to uh, uh, get more people to come in. I mean, we look at the U School, which is in the creative campus in the Kura Kura Island in Bali, uh, just like a garden. Right? In a garden, you have a a plot of land, a garden, and uh, you have gardeners, you have got uh, different species of plants, and all the species of plants have their own identity, yet they are sharing the same ecology, the soil, the air. Yeah? So that's what we hope that the creative campus, so the youth school will be uh, in this garden. And so we have got people like uh, 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 University of Indonesia is going to be there, 
Tsinghua University from China, uh, hopefully UWA will go there. We've got, so we have all these different people, a different uh, you know, uh, species of plants, if I may use, to be planted there. And collectively, it's going to be a garden that's going to be so beautiful with so many different types of plants, so many diverse types of fruits, and all cross-pollination. That's how I see the mm. new school is going to be like uh, yeah. in Bali. Really exciting. Okay, I think we've we've had a good chat there, Ben. Thanks for your time. Is there, is there any closing remarks or anything from you? Well, uh, the closing remarks is that, you know, uh, take diversity like rainbow and, and uh, embrace diversity uh, because increasingly we are going to live in a world of very diverse and two things that we're all concerned. One is about sustainability the other one is about transformation and so they go hand in hand if we have transformation doesn't have sustainability it doesn't work likewise your sustainability you try to build sustainable without any transformation of at the status quo nothing happens so all these things we need to remember that the key word is collaboration really and relationship so that's my uh, advice to you know uh, the people in Australia, Indonesia, and Singapore, and even beyond into Asia Pacific. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Brilliant. Good. <laughs>